0: so we're on the section where we were discussing about paradise and hell. قَوْلُهُ وَالْجَنَّةُ وَالنَّارُ مَخْلُوقَتَانِ Paradise and hell are created. لا تفنَّيَانِ أَبَدًا ولا They don't ever come to an end. They will never become extinct. For the paradise and the hell, they remain forever. وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَىٰ خَلَقَ الْجَنَّةَ وَالنَّارَ قَبْلَ الْخَلْقِ And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the paradise and hell before the other creation. وَخَلَقَ لَهُمَا أَهْلًا And Allah created for them their inhabitants. فَمَنْ شَاءَ مِنْهُمْ إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ فَضْلًا مِنْهُ so whomsoever wills from amongst this creation, then they go to paradise by the virtue of Allah. وَمَن شَاءَ مِنْهُمْ إلَى النَّارِ عَدْلًا منه And whomsoever He wills by His absolute justice, that they are deserving of the fire, then they will go to the fire. يعمل لَهَا قَدْ فُرِّغَ لَهُ, وصائر إلى ما خلق له وَالْخَيْرُ وَالشَّرُ مُقَدَّرَانِ عَلَى الْعِبَادِ And all of the people, they do what they've been created for, and they are heading what they have been created for, heading toward either that paradise or that hell, and the good and the bad, all of that which occurs in the decree, that has been decreed upon the servants. Therefore, Ibn Abil'iz mentions here, اتفق أهل السنة على أن الجنة والنار مخلوقتان موجودتان الآن. Ahlus Sunna, are united upon the fact that paradise and hell are already in existence right now. They've already been created. وَلَمْ يَزَلْ أَهْلُ السُنَّةَ عَلَى ذَٰلِكَ حَتَّى نَبَغَتْنَا مِنَ فَأَنْكَرَتْ ذَٰلِكَ And Ahl they've always been upon that opinion, upon that correct understanding that paradise and hell have already been created and they already exist. And that is the correct belief up until some of the people of innovation, the Mu'tazilah, the Qadriyyah, they came along and began to uh, reject the existence and the creation of the paradise and the hell. And they began to say, They said, "Allah will create paradise and hell on the day of judgment. They are not created yet already. Allah will create paradise and hell on the day of judgment. When that happens. But that is of course incorrect. Paradise and hell have already been created. And they already exist right now. وَحَمَلَهُمْ This was upon their... <coughs> intellect again, the people of innovation, one of the greatest reasons why they go astray is because of their need or their belief that their intellect has the ability to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is not, what is appropriate and what is not, so here with that incorrect and corrupt intellect of theirs in this matter, they decided that it is not befitting, not appropriate for paradise and hell to already be created. They decided with their intellect that the people are going to be cast into the hellfire and put into paradise on the day of judgment. Not now. So they said it is not befitting or appropriate for paradise and hell to already be created. Just logic from them. But we know that the texts of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, they highlight clearly that paradise and hell have already been created and they do already exist. So for example, (coughs) in the Qur'an, Allah mentioned regarding paradise that it is That paradise has been created for the pious. All of that ayah, you can see, is mentioned in the past tense. Allah says, paradise has been prepared for the pious, not Paradise will be prepared for the pious on that day. Allah says, Paradise has already been prepared for the pious. Past tense, it's already happened, it's been prepared, it's been created. Similarly, Allah said in the Quran, That paradise has already been prepared. For those who believe in Allah and His messengers. The same about the hellfire. Allah said in the Quran, أُعِدَّتْ That it has already been prepared for the disbelievers. So all of these ayat, they indicate that paradise and hell have already been created and prepared for the believers and the disbelievers, <coughs> for the people of paradise and the people of hellfire. Similarly, in the narration about Al-Isra' wal-Miraj, on the night when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was taken up to the heavens, on that night when the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam was taken up to the heavens, it mentions at the end of that narration thumma anṭalaqa bi jibril wa jibril then took me ḥattā atā ṣudrat al-muntaḥā fa rajāhā alwānun lā adrī mā hiya qāl thumma dakhaltu al-jannah fa idhā hiya janābi dhululul wa in that narration, which is in Al Bukhari Muslim, or the, na'am, in Bukhari Muslim, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi said, in that night journey of Al Isra Al Mi'raj, at one point he says, "Thumma dhaltu al jannah," that I actually went into paradise. Obviously, therefore, paradise has already been created and already exists for the Prophet ﷺ to have entered it and seen it on the night of the night journey, the night of Al-Isra'ul-Mi'raj. Similarly, we already mentioned about the Barzakh. One of the things that happens in the Barzakh when you're in the grave is that a door to paradise is opened or a door to Hellfire is opened. إن كان من أهل الجنة فمن أهل الجنة. وإن كان من أهل النار فمن أهل النار. يقال هذا مقعدك حتى يبعثك الله يوم القيامة. That he is shown his place in paradise if he's from the people of paradise. And shown his place in hellfire if he's from the people of the hellfire. And it is said to him, "This is your place. This is where you will be until uh, that resurrection then occurs." Wa and in that same narration, it also mentions Yunadi Munadin min that a caller calls out from the heavens and says, "Sadaqa abdi." مِنَ الْجَنَّةِ لَهُ Then in that narration, when that person is in the barzakh, it also mentions how a door, it is said, open a door for them into paradise. فَيَأْتِيهِ مِن رَوْحِهَا And so the fragrance and the goodness of paradise comes through to him. So all of these narrations, they indicate... That paradise and hell have already been created. That they already exist. And not like the people of innovation say. That paradise and hell, there is no point in them being present right now. Because the people are only going to go into them after the accountability. So it would be pointless Allah creating them now. That's what they say. But that is falsehood because Allah has clearly clarified to us in the Qur'an. He's already created them. And the Prophet Allah mentioned on the night of al-Isra al miraj the night journey that he saw them. So they have definitely already been created and they already exist. Then al-Imam al-Tahawi mentions, وَخُلِقَ لَهُمَا أَوْ خَلَقَ لَهُمَا أَهْلًا that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created the people for them. There are going to be inhabitants of paradise, and there are going to be inhabitants of the hellfire. Whomsoever by his mercy and virtue Allah decides is deserving of the paradise, then they go to paradise. And whomsoever by the absolute justice of Allah is deserving of the hellfire, then they will enter the hellfire. <coughs> As for that paradise, it mentions, it mentions in a narration, that in the paradise, there are tremendous rewards, such that nobody can even imagine. It mentions in a hadith, in paradise there is, مَا لَا وَلَا أُذُنٌ سَمِعَتْ وَلَا خَطَرَ عَلَىٰ قَلْبِ بَشَرْ That in paradise there is that which no eye has seen. No eye has ever seen the types of things that will be in paradise. وَلَا أُذُنٌ سَمِعَتْ And no ear has heard of the types of sounds and what will be in paradise. وَلَا خَطَرَ عَلَىٰ قَلْبِ بَشَرْ and neither has any heart of any person ever imagined what could be in paradise in reality. So no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no heart has ever imagined, been able to imagine the types of blessings that there will be in paradise. And that is prepared for the believers. And similarly, when it comes to the hell fire, Then there are descriptions given to us in the Qur'an regarding the hellfire, regarding the severity of the punishment in it, regarding, for example, it mentions in uh, Surah Al-Humazah, mentions there about how the fire will be in huge columns, huge pillars of fire, and the people of the hellfire try to climb out From the edges to get out of this pit they're in. And when they get right to the edge, to the gates, they're about to get out, then they are made to fall all the way back down again. And that makes their their punishment even more severe. The feeling of loss even more severe. That they were about to get out and then they keep being cast back in again. So, uh, And it mentions in that same surah, how the fire it penetrates or through into their hearts, when the fire burns them, burns right through their bodies and burns through to their hearts, such is the severity of that fire. Then al-Imam al-Tahawi says, وَالِسْتِطَاعَةَ الَّتِي يَجِبُ بِهَا الْفِعِلِ مِن نَحْوِ التَّوْفِيقِ الَّذِي لَا يجوز أن يوصف المخلوق به. تكون مع الفعل وامّا الاستضاع من جهه الصحه والوسع والتمكن وسلامه الالات فهي قبل الفعل وبها تتعلق الخطاب وهو كما لا يكلف الله نفسا الا وسعها This section is now talking about Something we have touched upon in previous chapters when we were talking about the decree of Allah. That Allah has given everybody an ability. And Allah has given everybody a choice. Everybody has an intention to do something. And everybody has been given the ability to carry that out. When you have those two points that the the intention, the niyyah, and the qudrah, the ability, then you make your choice. Somebody makes the intention to pick up the bottle of water, then they use their ability to do it. So now you've made that choice to do this action, by making the intention to do it, and then physically using your ability to do it. That is where that choice comes in, that is where that ability comes in, But here also it mentions regarding the issue of Allah not burdening a person beyond their ability. We all have ability, but everybody has their levels of ability. And so here he mentions that Allah does not burden a person more than it can bear, does not burden a soul more than it can bear, more than it can burden and that is in the ayah, لا يكلف الله نفسا إلا وصعها, That Allah does not burden a soul more than it can bear. And so we know this is from the ease that the sharia gives us. The ease and the facilitation. The fact that the Prophet ﷺ wanted ease for us too. All of that <coughs> is indicated by the principles of the sharia. So you have, for example, when it comes to the prayer. When it comes to the prayer, then we know the default, of course, is in the obligatory prayers. You have to stand and pray. It is a pillar of the prayer. It is a pillar of the prayer that you have to stand and pray. And that's mentioned in the hadith. Salli qa'iman. Pray standing up. But then the Prophet ﷺ said, فَإِن لَمْ تَسْتَطِعَ But if you do not have the ability, فَقَاعِدًا Then pray sitting down. فَإِن لَمْ تَسْتَطِعَ فَعَلَى جَنْبًا And if you do not even have the ability to sit up and pray, then lie down and pray. So all of that indicating to us the issue of this ability that we have, and that Allah does not burden a soul greater than it can bear, greater than the burden it can carry. A person who physically is unable to stand, then he's been told you can sit and pray. A person who physically can't even sit up, then he's been told you can lie down and pray. Some of the scholars even made ijtihad beyond that level that even if when you're lying down, you have no movement, you are absolutely paralyzed. Absolutely paralyzed. Then some <coughs> some of the scholars made ishtihar, they said, if you're absolutely paralyzed, then even lying down, you can't pray. If you're absolutely paralyzed, cannot move anything, then how are you even going to pray lying down in your bed? You can't do the takbir, you can't put your hands, you can't do anything. So then they made an ishtihad and they said in that case pray with your eyes. You're lying down absolutely paralyzed. Then do the ruku'ah by moving your eyes a bit lower. Do the sujood by moving them further down. Up and down and when you're standing to bring the eyes back up again. Then that would be your prayer if you were in a state of paralysis. So this is the ease that the Sharia gives. That a person is not burdened beyond his ability Rather, he does and performs the worship to the extent of his ability. Uh, And that does not mean that a person becomes slack. That you have the ability in reality, but you're just too lazy. Then you're going to be uh, in line for punishment. That would be a sin. This isn't talking about a person being lazy and can't be bothered. Then you have the ability, but you're not using it. We're talking about when a person just doesn't have an ability to do something. You've been injured in an accident, you can't stand up. So you do not have the ability to stand. So then you pray sitting. But as for a person who does (coughs) have the ability, (coughs) has the ability, but chooses not to use the ability, then that is sinful. You have the ability to go and pray, but laziness and everything you choose not to get up and go and pray. You can't say I don't have the ability. You have the ability, but you've not done it. So that would be sinful. (coughs) (coughs) Then, Al-Imam al tahawi mentions, وَأَفْعَالُ الْعِبَادِ هِيَ خَلْقُ اللَّهُ وَكَسْبٌ مِنَ الْعِبَادِ This issue basically, that the actions we do, Our actions, are they created by Allah? Or are we the ones doing them? And if they are created by Allah, then why are we accountable for anything? This is a bit like when we were talking about the topic of evil. Does Allah decree evil? Does Allah create and decree evil? And the answer is, in our perspective, we may perceive something, we may understand and see something to be evil in its creation and what it is, but from the perspective of Allah the Creator, there is a wisdom behind it. And we mentioned, Allah is not asked about what he does, but we are asked about what we do. So in the perspective of Allah creating that thing, there is some wisdom behind it. In our perspective, we may view it as evil though. A scorpion, why have scorpions been created? For us, we may think that is just evil. Scorpions bite you, poison, dead. What is the benefit of that for us? So we view that as something evil. However, Allah creating them, then there is some wisdom behind that from the wisdom of Allah creating those scorpions. Even though we in our perspective may not understand what's going on and why, from the perspective of Allah the Creator, there is wisdom in everything. Same here now, similar to that. Allah creates, everything creates what we do. But we are the ones held liable for the actions we do. Because like we said, Allah has given us choice. You are the one who chooses to do something. Allah is the one who gives you that ability and creates that to occur. And allows that to occur. But you have been given choice to do it. Allah knows what choices you're going to make. Allah knows if you're going to make the choices of good or the choices of bad. So that from the perspective of the creation of our actions and everything, yes, Allah creates everything. But from the perspective of who's liable, we are the ones then who Allah has given us the ability to choose and we are choosing what we do. We are choosing to do good or choosing to do bad. Allah of course already knows what choices we're going to make and therefore knows where we're going to end up. So you have to remember this point about this ability Allah has given us to choose and that's why we are held accountable to choose to be upon good or to choose to be upon bad. And then al Imam al-Tahawi says وَلَمْ يُكَلِّفُهُمُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَىٰ إِلَّا مَا يُطِيقُونَ That Allah has not burdened them except with that which they are capable of. وَلَا يُطِيقُونَ إِلَّا مَا كَلَّفَهُمْ And we are not capable of anything other than what Allah has obligated upon us. وَهُوَ تَفْسِيرُ لَا حَوْلَ وَلَا قُوَّةَ إِلَّا بِاللَّهِ And that is what it means when you say لَا حَوْلَ وَلَا قُوَّةَ إِلَّا بِاللَّهِ That there is no might, no power except by the will of Allah. Except by Allah. There is no might, no power, except by Allah. That you have no ability, you have no control, you have no power, to do anything, except by the will of Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. نقول (laughs) لا حيلة لأحد ولا تحول لأحد ولا حرك لأحد عن معصية الله إلا بمعونة الله That there is no Nothing you can do, no movement you can make, no change you can create uh, or to abstain from the sinning of Allah except all of it by the aid of Allah. You need the aid and the assistance from Allah to do what you do and to remain upon obedience and to remain upon worship. And you need that aid and assistance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. ولا قوة لأحد على إقامة على إقامة طاعة الله والثبات عليها إلا بتوفيق الله. (coughs) nobody has the ability (coughs) to be upon the worship of Allah and to be upon the obedience to Allah except by the aid from Allah upon you. You do not have that ability yourself. You do not control things yourself. You need aid and assistance from Allah to maintain yourself upon that straight path. You need aid and assistance from Allah to keep you upon that obedience to Allah. So this is not something a person can do in of himself. You do not control anything yourself. And we studied that in Kitab al Tawheed previously. If when they used to go out sailing and the ship was about to sink or something, and then the sailor, the captain managed to save the boat, and they say, Was it not for the skill of the sailors, then we would have drowned. That's an incorrect statement. Was it not for the skill of those sailors on board that day, we would have gone down, all of us. That's incorrect. What you're supposed to say is, was it not for the mercy of Allah, we would have all gone down that day. Not the skill of the sailors, the skill of the sailors is something Allah has given them. The skill of the sailors and the way the winds blew and whatever happened and you got saved, all of that is from Allah. So here a person can never attribute to himself his achievements or what he's doing and being upon obedience you never attribute it to yourself like you are in control of that, and you know you can do that for yourself. That isn't the case. You are upon obedience by the mercy of Allah, and that's why the prophets ﷺ always used to say, "Ya mukallibal thabbit qalbi aladinik." O Allah, the One who changes the hearts of the people, keep my heart firm upon your religion. And in the narration how it mentions the hearts of the servants are between the fingers of Ar-Rahman. He changes them as he pleases. And so you ask Allah always to keep you firm upon that truth, to keep you firm upon the obedience to Allah, because you do not know when your hearts may change, when the hearts may change and alter and deviate. So that is something the Prophet ﷺ regularly used to make dua for, Asking Allah to keep his heart firm upon that upright religion. You even have the example of Ibrahim alayhi salam. When Ibrahim alayhi salam was making dua to Allah, وَجُنُوبِنِي وَبَنِيَّا أَنَّ الْأَصْنَامِ Oh Allah, protect me and my offspring from ever worshipping the idols. Protect me and my offspring from ever worshipping the idols. Making dua to Allah to keep him firm And to keep him upright and away from shirk Him and his offspring Similarly Allah mentioned in the Quran That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will keep firm Those who are upon iman Allah will keep them firm those who are upon Iman, Allah will keep them firm with an upright statement in this world, meaning upon as al mustaqeem Allah will keep you upon the straight path in this world. Wa fi'l-Akhirah, and Allah will keep you upright and strong in the afterlife, meaning when Fitnatul-Qabr occurs, the trial of the grave occurs. So this is something that a person needs to remember regularly and always. لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. That there is no might, no power except by the command of Allah. وكل شيء يجري بما الله تعالى. And everything occurs by the will of Allah. Everything occurs by the will of Allah, by the wish of Allah. وَعِلْمِهِ وَقَدْرِهِ <coughs> And by the knowledge of Allah and His decree. al Mashiat كلها. Uh, كُلِّهَا That the مشيئة, the wish of Allah, the will of Allah, overrides the will of all others <coughs> وعكست إرادته الإرادات كلها وغلب قضائه الحيل كلها يفعل ما يشاء وهو غير ظالم أبدا لا يسأل عما يفعل وهم يسألون that the will of Allah overrides the will of all else and that is in the Quran وما تشاءون إلا أن يشاء الله رب العالمين You do not will for anything, wish for anything, except that Allah wishes that first. Except that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills it first. So the will of Allah overrides all else. But then a person may say, back to the same point, and by now we know the answer. If the will of Allah overrides everything, then aren't we just doing what the will of Allah is upon us? Because the will of Allah overrides our will. So if we do evil, why is that our fault? It's the will of Allah. How do you answer? you the ability, you have the choice, but Allah already knows what you want to choose, basically. Just like that. Allah gave us the choice to make our will in our decision. But Allah already knows by the great knowledge of Allah that encompasses everything Allah knows what choices you're going to make and that's why the will of Allah has overridden your will Allah already knows knows what you're going to choose and what you're going to not choose but at the moment of doing it Allah's given you the ability to make the choice Allah already knows what you're going to choose whether you're going to choose to be obedient or you're going to choose to be disobedient Allah knows already what you're going to choose and that's why it's already decreed but you at the moment of choosing, have the choice. Either you can be good, or you can choose to go do something haram. So, the will of Allah overrides all of the wills of the creation. And it says at the end, وَهُوَ غَيْرُ zalim أَبَدًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never oppresses ever. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never oppresses no oppression ever and la yusalu amma yaf'al وهم yus'alun he is not asked about what he does but they we are the ones who are asked about what we do here we could mention briefly firstly regarding this issue of ظلم oppression Al-Imam Al-Tahawi has mentioned here that Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala never oppresses not even an atom's weight of oppression an example highlighting that is the hadith al-bitaqah the man who comes on the day of judgment with 99 scrolls full of evil deeds 99 scrolls full of evil deeds and it will be said to him on that day, Do you have any good deeds? Initially the man says, No. no. He says, La ya Rabb. He says, I don't have any good deeds at all, my Lord. He thinks he has no good deeds. <coughs> but then Allah says, Actually, Bal laka indana Hasana. Actually, we do have a good deed recorded for you. And there will be no oppression upon you today. Allah mentions there clearly no oppression upon anyone. You do have a good deed. Even though the man himself thought he didn't have any good deeds and he was saying, I haven't got any good deeds, my lord. But that good deed will be brought out and it is said to him, You do have a good deed. And there will be no oppression upon you. That good deed was that he died upon? Tawheed. Tawheed. La ilaha illallah. And it outweighs all of those bad deeds. Similarly in the hadith Qudsi. Hadith Qudsi is a hadith that the Prophet ﷺ narrates from Allah directly. In this hadith Qudsi Allah says, Ya ibadi. (inaudible) inni haramtu al-dhulma ala nafsi waj'altuhu muharraman bainakum aw bainakum muharraman fala tudhalmu Allah says O oh my servants indeed i have made oppression haram upon myself that Allah does not oppress anyone at all, even an atom's weight. I have made oppression haram upon myself. And then Allah tells us, and I have made it haram upon you, for you to oppress each other. فَلَا تَظَالَمُ So do not oppress one another. Allah commands us, do not oppress one another. Do not do wrong to one another. Because I have made the dhulm, this wrong and oppression, haram upon myself and haram upon you to do to each other. So do not oppress one another. So here that is the point al-Imam al-Tahawi is mentioning. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not oppress anyone. It's mentioned in a hadith, لَوْ أَنَّ اللَّهَ عَذَّبَ أَهْلَ سَمَاوَاتِهِ وَأَرْضِهِ لَعَذَّبَهُمْ وَهُوَ غَيْرُ ظَالِمٍ لَهُمْ وَلَوْ رَحِمَهُمْ كَانَتْ رَحْمَتُهُ خَيْرًا لَهُمْ مِنْ أعمالهم. In this hadith it's mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ said hadith which is sahih that if Allah was to punish all of the peoples of the heavens and the earth if he was to punish everyone, then he could punish them all, and he wouldn't be oppressing anyone. There wouldn't be any oppression. If Allah was to oppress every uh, to uh, punish everyone in the heavens, in the earth, he could do that, and there wouldn't be any oppression. And if he showed mercy to all of them then the mercy that He shows them would be greater than the level of good deeds they've done to earn that mercy. So the mercy of Allah is greater than your deeds have earned. Or the greater, greater than what your deeds would be equivalent to. Because we know nobody enters paradise because of your deeds. You do not buy a place in paradise equivalent to the number of deeds you've done. It is not a barter or an exchange in that way. That your good deeds buy you a place in paradise. It's not like that. They said to the Prophet not even with you, not even your good deeds you get into paradise with them. He said, not even me. Paradise will be entered by the mercy of Allah upon us. It is not like we earn our place in paradise and we can buy our place in paradise with good deeds. You do your good deeds for that to then be accepted by Allah and then for Allah by His mercy to enter you to paradise. You do not purchase yourself a place with your good deeds. You will be entered by the mercy of Allah. (coughs) In another narration when the Prophet ﷺ used to make dua, he used to say, "Allah <laughs> indicating the great mercy of Allah, that o oh Allah, I have oppressed myself and done wrong to myself a lot, and nobody forgives the sins except you, so forgive me." Uh, uh, a forgiveness from yourself and have mercy upon me indeed you are the all, the all forgiving the all merciful so here it's mentioned regarding how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala his will overrides the will of everyone and that he does not oppress anyone not one bit and that he is not asked about what he does but we are the ones who are asked about what we do then it moves on to another subject. It says, وَفِي دُعَاءِ الْأَحْيَاءِ وَصَدَقَاتِهِ مَنْ al لِلْأَمْوَاتِ This is a different chapter now. Here now he says, Living people, when they make dua, and they give charity on behalf of the dead, then that benefits the dead. So this is the topic of what types of actions can you do for people who have died. There are certain types of worship that you can do for someone who's died. What are the types of worship you can do on behalf of them? And so they get the reward for it too. What types of worship? Here he's mentioned two. Dua, that's obvious. Making dua for those who have died. Making dua for them. Asking Allah to forgive them. Asking Allah to have mercy on them. Asking Allah to place them in paradise. All of that dua you make for the deceased, it benefits the deceased. That dua has an impact for the deceased. And it is beneficial for the deceased. That the believers are making du'a for them. Secondly, he's mentioned here, Charity. So you can give in charity on behalf of the deceased. Your parents, your grandparents, others have died. And you give some charity with the intention it is on their behalf. And that is something they benefit from. That is something they do reap the rewards of. And you yourself get the reward too. You get the reward for doing a righteous action and an act of worship, and they'll get the reward too, <coughs> that you are doing it on their behalf, giving charity on behalf of the deceased. What other actions can be done on behalf of the deceased? Bani said, like a child reading the Quran and doing ibadat, like worship, fasting, spending knowledge, is parents get benefit. That is worth him That's a general thing. That is a general type. That is a general type which is of the parents' own actions. The parents have raised the children upon righteousness. Those children then live upon righteousness as a consequence of the teaching of their parents. So the parents get reward. But that was because the parents raised them in that way in the first place. So that goes back to the hadith about your actions are all cut off except from knowledge that you leave behind, a righteous child that you leave behind, so that's a bit like your own actions initially. It was your initial action to raise those children upon righteousness, to give them knowledge, and then they do all this worship and everything, and you're benefiting. That's a bit like your own initial action. What about other actions that you just do for somebody else? and <laughs> Umrah, <laughs> correct. and <laughs> Umrah, they are actions you can do on behalf of the deceased. Of course, we know that the condition is you must have done hajj and umrah for yourself first. You have to have done your own. If you've never done hajj, then the first time you go there to do hajj, you can't do it on behalf of uh, your, your relatives or somebody who's passed away, you can't. The first time hajj, you have to do it for yourself. Then if you go again the next year or some other year, You've done your own now, that next time you come back, you could do that hajj on behalf of one of your deceased relatives who never got to do it. Umrah, same thing. If you've done your own umrah, then next time you can do the umrah with the intention of one of your deceased relatives or even not a relative, somebody from the believers that you make the intention for them. And then that can be done in that way. So hajj and umrah. Is the umrah... If you go in one trip, you do your own Umrah, and then the, some people do it. Okay. No, for this is days. not really Sunnah. Some people, they go to Umrah, so they do their own Umrah. And then after that, they go to Tanaim, Masjid Aisha. They go drive out to there, put the ihram on, drive back in again, and do another Umrah. Or maybe they come to Mecca first, do an Umrah, then go to Medina. Then at the end of their trip, they're coming back to Mecca for another Umrah. So within two weeks, they get to go to Mecca twice, with Medina in between. So they do two Umrahs. That is actually not the Sunnah. It is not the Sunnah to do multiple Umras when you go. When you go there and you make a trip to Mecca, to Saudi, <coughs> Uh, Then it is the sunnah that you only do your one umrah for that trip when you go It is not a sunnah to do multiple umrahs And in fact some of the salaf They used to say it might even be borderline bid'ah Tawus for example he said I don't know These people who do these multiple umrahs Are they getting rewarded or are they getting sin? Some of them said it's borderline bid'ah to do multiple umrah, umrah every day, every day, go to Tan'im, Masjid Aisha come back, another umrah, next day come back, another umrah. The Salaf, they said that is not the way, that's never been prescribed to do those things. And this issue of going out to Masjid Aisha, Tan'im, it is much disputed and many scholars have said it is not correct. There may be some scholars who allow it, but the majority and the clear explanations highlight it is not something correct to do. For a person to go out to Masjid Aisha, tan'eem Make the ihram again and come back into Mecca Do another umrah So when you go there It's not a sunnah To do multiple umrah There are lots of other worship Tawaf for example Tawaf yes Sunnah you can do as many times Finish your umrah Next day in your normal clothes Go do seven circuits Tawaf Seven seven rounds around the Kaaba You can do that Sunnah That same evening You want to come back and do another seven circuits Another Tawaf Just a Tawaf in your normal clothes, everything, you can do that. Next morning you want to do another one, do it. Tawaf is an act of worship you can do multiple times. Prayer in the mosque, other types of things like that. But full Umrah again and again and again, two, three, four times, try and get as many in as you can before you come back, that isn't a sunnah. So this thing about people going there and doing Umrah for themselves and then doing one for one of their deceased family members in that same trip, it's not actually a sunnah. That doesn't mean to say, That this Umrah of theirs is invalid. InshaAllah Ta'ala, it is valid and it counts, but it is not the way of the Sunnah to do those things. It is not prescribed in the Sunnah anywhere to do those things. They used to come from various places far and away to come and do Umrah. In those days when they used to come for Hajj. In those days when they used to come for Hajj. From modern day Syria and Iraq and those kinds of places. Walking on their donkeys to get to Makkah. They had more right and more need to try and get lots of Umrahs in before they go. Because when they go, they're not going to come back again the next week or the next month. Traveling on their donkeys, it would take a month just to get back. But it's never narrated. They used to come and do multiple Umrahs, multiple Umrahs, and then go back. They would come, do their one Hajj, do their Umrah. When you go to Hajj, you can do one Umrah, and you can do your Hajj. You can do your, if you're doing Tamattu, then you have your Umrah, you have your Hajj. But not multiple times. It's not really a sunnah to do multiple umrahs in the same visit. Some of the scholars even say, once you do an umrah and you shave your head, in the books of fiqh they mention it, that you shouldn't do another umrah until the blackness of your hair comes back. So you know when you shave your head, it takes a couple of weeks or so until the white, bold head disappears and you got some proper black hair now popping up. That doesn't happen in two days or three days or even a week. It takes a few days, it takes a while. A few days for the blackness to appear, for the hair to appear again, the bristles of the hair to appear again. They say when they appear, then go do your next umrah. Before that, when you have just shaved it, two days later, when you do your umrah, what are you going to shave now? (laughs) There's nothing there. So in the books of fiqh, I think Imam Shafi'i and some others, they used to say you have to wait for the blackness of the hair to come back. The blackness takes a few days at least, a week, two weeks, three weeks. Some of them used to say you shouldn't do it less than once every few weeks, a month, things like that. So multiple Umrahs isn't something mentioned, but the point here was Umrah and Hajj can be done on behalf of the deceased. What else? Before we round off, what else can be done on behalf of the deceased? Fasting can be done on behalf of the deceased. And it is differed over though, what type of fasting? Some say any fasting. If somebody died, and they had days left to make up from Ramadan, you can make those days up for them. Others, they say, no, not obligatory fasting. Uh, uh, Rather, they say, not fasting which is obligatory by default. What's obligatory by default? Ramadan. Ramadan. There are other types of fasting which are obligatory, but not by default. Like when you make a vow. I vow that I will fast so many days next month. Now you've made it. Obligatory, but it wasn't obligatory by default. If he didn't make the vow, there was no obligation. Those types of ones, some scholars say you can make up. Imagine a person made a vow and then died before he got to that month to make those three days he was going to do. So now you can fulfill his vow on his behalf and fast. Some scholars say you can do that. Others they say you can do that and the obligatory ones, the Ramadan everything. That's a difference of opinion. So fasting is one. Anything else? Any other legal vow? Yeah, uh, fulfilling vows you can say generally fulfilling vows on behalf of the deceased (coughs) taking care of their debts and all those things those general actions you can all do on behalf of the deceased and that is good prayer prayer on behalf of the deceased Mm -hmm. completely impermissible you cannot pray on behalf of somebody else Somebody never used to pray, you think he's going to be in punishment, let me do prayers for him. You pray your dhuhr, after dhuhr you make another intention for dhuhr for that person now. Next asr, you pray your asr, make another intention and pray his asr for him. You can't do that. You cannot pray on behalf of somebody else. So there are only restricted actions. There is a bigger debate, a much bigger topic about what types of actions you can do for somebody. These ones you've mentioned are the main core of them. The fasting upon the two opinions, the umrah the Hajj, the charity, the dua, these are the main ones the scholars they mention. So we'll have to round off on that point for today then. We'll carry on from next week with the remainder. We're almost towards the end of it now as well. InshaAllah ta'ala.